We're getting closer to it, so make sure that you get your tickets. Presented by CyberScoop, DC Cyber Talks is a TED-like conference dedicated to addressing cybersecurity priorities, trends, innovations, and the unprecedented security challenges ahead. For one day, 1,000 of the most influential cyber leaders from tech and government will gather in DC to hear the industry's brightest speakers discuss the most critical issues in cybersecurity. The event will take place on Thursday, October 24th at the Andrew Mellon Auditorium in D.C. Register now at dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for October 11th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm General Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. There's a very interesting case going on in New York that could shape the future of cyber insurance. We'll dive into the ramifications. In our interview, we talked to Jason Sirocco, CTO of IoT, Esetigo. If you are a PKI nerd, you're going to want to listen to this one. Some smaller companies getting some interesting raises. We will break it down in the latter half of our conversation. But first, let's get to all the news that occurred this week. Insurance giant AIG argued to a New York federal court that it is not responsible to cover nearly $6 million in losses incurred by a client that was victimized with suspected Chinese hackers. The company asked a court in the Southern District of New York to dismiss a lawsuit filed in August by SS&C Technologies, a $6 billion financial technology company, which alleged that AIG violated its contract by failing to cover losses from fraud. Hackers fleeced SSNC out of $5.9 million in 2016 by emailing company employees from spoofed email addresses and requesting monetary transfers. Greg, if cyber insurance doesn't cover this, what does it cover? Yeah, I'm not really sure because, look, there are only so many things that can cause uh, a the, you know cybersecurity incident. Um, just uh, a criminal or a hacktivist or a lone wolf, whatever you want to call it, one person causing havoc. Or it's, you know, uh, a group of criminals, you know, some sort of like mafia or mob type thing, or uh, a nation state that has, you know, caused uh, havoc and is is looking to steal data from you, whether it's IP or uh, financial data. So if cyber insurance companies are going to say, oh, well, if this is a criminal act or if this is an act of war, we're not going to cover it, what are they covering? What are, are they covering? Like, that's it. That's what they need to cover. So for, for AIG to turn around and, and say this, it's really interesting and not in a great way because I don't think that the insurers really understand yet the way that attacks work. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I really, I kind of wonder what the contract says, right? So if you're taking out all criminal activity, you know, why else is um, data stolen, right? I think you can point to really any data breach and say there was some sort of criminal activity there. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not really sure what you would even write ahead of time. Like when you are writing a plan and putting it together, I'm wondering how that language doesn't even make it in there. Like if you were this SS&C technologies company, you would think that the, the fine print would cover this. Like it's almost like getting an insurance plan for car insurance and saying, you know, this this insurance plan doesn't cover any damages of above, you know, driving 10 miles right. an hour. Like, w- wait, w- w- what are we really talking about here? We wouldn't be able to use this 
at all. This plan's a waste. So the the, the parameters of this plan are are, are again are, are really really interesting and really goes to show that cyber insurance, even though it's growing, just is not where it needs to be when it comes to the way that attacks unfold. And I don't think insurers get it yet. I mean, it'll definitely be interesting to watch, and certainly this case is going to set some sort of big precedent, I'm sure. So DHS's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency asked Congress for the authority to subpoena internet service providers for the contact information of critical infrastructure companies that may be vulnerable to hacking. This comes amid DHS officials' frustration that the law prevents them from directly contacting those asset owners, having to go through a third party instead. A key focus of any new administrative subpoena power would be focused on industrial control systems. A House Homeland Security aide told CyberScoop that any changes to the law would have to come with insurances that the proper privacy measures are in place. Jen, do you trust that DHS will actually follow those privacy measures if they get the subpoena power? I guess I'm a little confused here, right? I guess I would, I kind of wonder why isn't DHS allowed to reach out directly um, to a critical a company with critical infrastructure. Well, it goes back to, to the previous conversation that we were having about uh, how exactly a cyber attack unfolds and it being really viewed as a criminal act. Um, I, I think up until now, if you were to look at uh, a hypothetical attack on uh, an industrial control system, I think the FBI would be the office that is reaching out to a company or to whoever is in charge of that industrial control system. And I I think that's just a layer of bureaucratic red tape that I can understand that DHS is like, okay, well, if we're going to be responsible for the cleanup, let let us establish a foothold from the very beginning and not have to go through the FBI and let's try to, you know, move at the speed by which these attacks unfold. I mean, I guess I really don't see a downside if I'm putting it with critical infrastructure to the DHS reaching out to me on day one, just to be like, Hey, just checking on to make sure you're secure. Here's some tips or whatever. I mean, I don't, I would be happy to have that relationship. So I'm a little bit confused about why people aren't happy to have the relationship. Yeah. I, I, I think it, it goes back to also, you know, DHS is really still in its infancy when you talk about it from a, you know, history of federal agencies perspective. So a lot of these, you know, rules that they're following uh, aren't really codified yet. And they're still figuring out how to, you know, codify their, their cyber mission. So I I think this is a smart move forward, but uh, yeah, I I think people should also be worried about the, the privacy aspect of this because look, federal agencies don't have a great track record when it comes to protecting privacy. So it, that's, it's just, you know, just the lay of the land. Nobody really does. So, um, yeah, I, I think this is a, a good idea for DHS, but I, let's hope those uh, safeguards are really strongly put in place. So hackers potentially working on behalf of a foreign government have targeted Moroccan human rights advocates with malicious software built by NSO Group, according to Amnesty International. A prominent journalist and an attorney repeatedly have received malicious links and browser redirections that, if trusted, would install the Pegasus malware. It's the latest allegation that NSO Group provided Pegasus to a customer that used it for more than combating terrorism and crime. The software allows attackers to take almost total control of an affected phone. Human Rights Watch has documented a list of government efforts to obstruct reform in Morocco, including prison sentences for people who have harmed the monarchy there or insulted Islam. 
Greg, what happened to the human right policy? Yeah, it was just a month ago that we were talking about NSO Group really refining their um, their policies and saying, oh, you know, we will watch out uh, to make sure that our services aren't used in uh, a a poor manner or they don't fall into the hands of authoritarian governments. And then exactly one month later, we see exactly the same stories that we've been seeing just in uh, a different country. So a lot of lip service for not a lot of action, it looks like. Well, and maybe the NSO group sold them that um, before then, right? Maybe it's been in their hands for a year. I'm sure the timeline backs that up. But at the at the same time, I'm, I'm not surprised by uh, any of this whatsoever, including the fact there was a quote, I believe, that they gave the Jerusalem Post, because they are uh, an Israeli-based uh, company. They gave a quote that something along the lines of, hey, you know, uh, everybody thinks that they're human rights activists, but some people could consider them terrorists too. And who are we to decide that? And it's like, and it was just galling that that's the line they're they're trotting out. Like, oh, 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 some people consider these human rights activists that work with Amnesty International as terrorists. <laughs> okay, Let, let's let's be real. Yeah, whatever the narrative to make it work for you, I guess. So Twitter announced on Tuesday it accidentally misused for advertising purposes email addresses, and phone numbers that users had supplied strictly for security reasons. In a blog post, the company says the addresses and numbers were dumped into its tailored audience product, which allowed advertisers to target ads to customers based on the advertiser's own marketing lists. The numbers came from Twitter's two-factor authentication process, which sends a one-time code via SMS during the login process. Using a phone number and two-factor is already frowned upon in some circles, so this incident isn't going to make things any better. Jen, how are you feeling about your privacy right now if you've signed up for 2FA? You know, I'm starting to wonder if all of the telemarketing calls I've all of a sudden started to get are not related to Twitter. Um Yeah, I mean, I think this is unfortunate. I guess I still look at any time you give any information to any of these companies, the likelihood that it's private, I think is really unlikely. Um, But shame on them, right? I mean, this is um, one of those things they were supposed to keep secure. And they should have had um, a plan in place to make sure that happened. And I I look at it from the other perspective as, you know, look, using a phone number to get an uh, SMS token for two-factor, no, it's not great, but it's better than nothing. So there's still a wide swath of the population that doesn't understand what 2FA even is or even if they should be using it. So to find out that, oh, okay, the company that I'm going to give this phone number to for security purposes is going to abuse it by targeting ads, like why would I, why would I use that? Like I already see enough ads. Why would I go ahead and use that if I can't trust them to even get it right? And they say accidentally. And I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm making air quotes right now. Accidentally. Like I, I don't, you, you have to take them at their word, but I mean, other companies have done this too. I mean, Facebook did it. We talked about it. Facebook did it and didn't even tell anybody. We're like, yeah, we did it. What of it? Come at us. I mean, <laughs> how many other companies are doing the same thing and we just don't know, right? Like taking right. taking your information, whether it's for security purposes or whatever purposes, and then flipping it and, and using it for their own monetary gain. That pro- I mean, that happens all the time. It absolutely happens all the time. So like, 
I, I just it, it's mind numbing to to read this and just you know think about all the work that needs to be done to get more and more people to adhere to a smart uh, security behavior, and then something like this happens, and it's just like, oh, well, why even bother? Well, I mean, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, clearly people should still use it. Um, and, you know, we need to clean our houses and make sure that our security policies are in place. And hopefully it wasn't on purpose. So, Let's hope. So the National Security Agency Director, General Paul Nakasone, on Wednesday criticized the Chinese government's recent efforts to spread disinformation about protests in Hong Kong focused on a controversial Chinese law. Nakasone delivered his remarks at FireEye's Cyber Defense Summit in Washington, D.C., noting, quote, the Chinese government has subverted pro-democratic demonstrators from fake social media posts, providing us a snapshot of how Beijing weaponizes information, end quote. In recent months, Google, Twitter, and Facebook caught China spreading propaganda, denigrating protesters, and applauding police. Greg, this really is the topic all over D.C. this week, yeah? Yeah, if it's not... um Related to impeachment stuff, the the China protests have been just on the top of everybody's mind. I mean, particularly you've seen it with uh, the NBA and what's been happening there. Uh, the NBA trying to the NBA had uh, an employee speak out against uh, China, and then it turned into this big thing where China was uh, canceling. Uh, a bunch of uh, press tours and coverage of uh, NBA in China. Which, and that's been really the focal point for the Chinese protests. Um, so, and with what General Nakasone said, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think it's like, he's not going out on a limb there, but at the same time, it's, it's smart to say, oh, okay, look, China is doing this too, because look, we've talked about disinformation since 2016, and obviously that has been through the lens of Russia. But China does it too. They've been doing it. They do it a, a, a little more subtle than the way Russia does it, but they're still doing it. I mean, I, I think we also talked about a story a couple of weeks ago where there were researchers that found that um, China was using YouTube and China was using Twitter to just throw disinformation all over the place with regards to what's going on in Hong Kong. So, hey, if there's an authoritarian regime out there and they're any sort of savvy when it comes to technology and social media, they're going to flood the airwaves with fake news. Like that's just what happens now. Like that's the reality of the times. And you know, good for uh, General Nakasone for calling it out and and hoping to forge some sort of policy where we can counteract it. Well, and if they were listening to our podcast last week, they learned about a company that could help them do that. Absolutely. <laughs> so the Sesame Street Live store, where fans of the children's show buy merchandise, is one of more than 6,500 websites that security researchers say may be compromised by payment skimmers after an apparent breach at an e-commerce platform. A breach of Illusion, which provides cloud infrastructure for online stores, made it possible for thieves to insert malicious code onto many of the sites partnered with Volusion, according to researcher Marshall Afrain. Malicious JavaScript code, which on the surface looks like some code that developers just grabbed from any open source libraries, is extracting credit card information from affected pages. Volusion told CyberScoop on Wednesday that the issue, which affected what it described as its V1 merchants only, has been resolved. Jen, I guess nothing is sacred if hackers are going after Sesame Street. 
Yeah, and poor Sesame Street, right? They're one of 6,500 and sort of been the focal point here. Um, what is a V1 merchant? So I think V1 is their product, the the actual product okay. by which, you know, if, if you went to Volusion and you needed an e-commerce platform, uh, they would roll out their, their V1 service for you. So that is the service that looks like it was hit with this, uh, this JavaScript insert. Um, I mean, look, we've talked about Magecart for forever. This is, this has all the hallmarks of, of Magecart finding third party yeah. IT e-commerce services, finding a way to inject JavaScript code, throwing it out there and just seeing what comes back. I mean, it, it is, the, I, I'm, I, I would wager that whoever is behind this had was not targeting the Sesame Street live store. They just went on this platform and tried to pull what they could. And yeah, this is, uh, it, to me, this just screams mage cart. Yeah. And, you know, it, it goes to show that when you're practicing cyber hygiene, there should be a credit card that you have that you only use for online purchases and you don't put your numbers out for any other bank card or credit card. And it also goes to show the value in using some of the bigger platforms. Like, look, I'm all for trying to find a deal on the internet, wherever it is, I can find it. But, you know, you're talking about these third-party e-commerce sites. Like, I would have never known the Sesame Street Live Store was out there. I just would have gone on to Amazon because not only is it convenient, there's also a safety mechanism that goes into that as well. And it shows some of these smaller shops that are relying on third parties may not have the the budgets or even the know-how to how to secure their platforms. So it's something to consider as we continue to shop online. Yeah. I mean, you know, they always say that, you know, saving 10 or 20 bucks on something you're buying from a site you don't know, is just not worth it. But speaking of Amazon, I received a phone call yesterday um, alerting me that I might have a fraudulent purchase on my Amazon account, which was completely inaccurate. I've noticed a change in the way that the the robocall scams work now. Um, Mine have been really focused on uh, my electricity bill lately. Like I got a call from Canada yesterday that said they wanted to talk about my electricity bill. I mean, there was absolutely no reason for that to ever be legitimate. But when I picked up it was it sounded like an old woman's old woman's voice that just happened to dial the wrong number and it sort of clicked for me where you know sometimes you might get a robo call and say hello a couple times and then it just um clicks off like the call just drops i think that they whoever the scammers are behind us are recording our voices to use as deception to get us to pick up further robo call uh attempts because it sounded, the call that I got sounded like an old woman that was, you know, dialed the wrong number. And then it launched into the spiel about my, uh, uh, electricity bill or something like that. So something to watch out for there. They're developing ways to, to engineer us to stay on the phone longer. See, and I think that's interesting. So I got a phone call a couple days ago from a friend who said, um, did you just hang up on me? And, I, you know, had no idea. Well, apparently he got a phone call from a number that was like a digit off of mine. And it sounded like I was saying hello to him. He recognized my voice. And then the number was really similar. Um, So I kind of wondered if it doesn't go a step further where not only are they recording your voice, but they're somehow picking up um, all of your contacts 
and targeting. So it sounds like someone familiar. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's really interesting. And I think there's a social engineering aspect to that, that that's out there. I mean, that, that can be done just open source intelligence wise, just looking at who you might work with or who your contacts are, or even just combing your LinkedIn um, profile to see who you might talk to on a business level. I would not be surprised uh, if that was the case. So yeah. On the business side of things, two business announcements uh, to cover here. CFC, a specialist insurance provider and uh, a company that works in emerging risk, announced that it expanded its own in-house cyber response capabilities by acquiring Solus Security. Uh, Solus was based in Texas and did IR. So now CFC, this insurance provider, has an incident response team uh, that's pretty big, and they say they've handled nearly 1,500 cyber claims this year alone. So based on that AIG story we were talking about earlier at the beginning, and definitely a company watch. And Raspberry Technologies, which provides secure video surveillance and IoT solutions, announced a $5.8 million investment round led by Live Oak Venture Partners, a venture capital fund based in Austin, Texas. Uh, Jen, what do you think? So I think it's really interesting, right? So I, you know, I have Nest cameras in my home and I don't, I mean, I, they're not secure. I mean, they're secure, but they're not secure. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting to see more companies pop up that are providing security in that way. Um, you know, I think IOT is sometimes forgotten about. And I think, you know, we have a lot of things in our homes um, that are a lot less secure than we think they are. So um, another layer of protection to me is exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes. On the security side of, of things, when it comes to the secure video surveillance, I think whatever you can do to get that into the consumer space, I think is a good uh, investment opportunity. That's just my personal opinion, because I think on the enterprise side, I think that that's there. I think that you can get that from uh, a lot of companies that are focused on the enterprise, but on the consumer side, uh, you just don't see it. So, okay, now to our interview with uh, Jason Soroka. We talked to Jason uh, a couple months ago at uh, Gartner, but uh, this conversation definitely holds up. We dive into PKI and into the security that goes into IoT. So right off of our conversations from Raspberry, we can jump into how companies are protecting IoT as more and more devices come online. Check it out. Joining us today is Jason Sorgo, CTO of IoT at Satigo. So Jason, tell us a little bit more about Satigo and what exactly the CTO of IoT is responsible for. Sounds good. Uh, Satigo is one of the world's largest issuers of public trust. So you think about SSL certificates. For those of you who use a web browser, you see HTTPS. Mm-hmm. We're the people who produce those certificates. We're the world's largest commercial supplier of those certificates. Uh, but we also have a private trust part of our business, which is PKI. Okay. Uh, the company started, uh, was basically purchased out of the old Komodo Security Group uh, back in late 2017. And now we are uh, rebranded as of late last year to Sectigo. Okay. So explain a little bit more on what exactly a CTO IoT does. And I'm interested to hear how PKI is factoring into IoT. 100%. Uh, Werner Vogels, uh, who was the CTO for Amazon, okay. wrote a great blog piece on uh, the four different roles that a CTO can play. And it's all over the place because sometimes for a small startup, a CTO might be the person who's in charge of R&D uh, or they might be in charge of just general operations of a tech company. Okay. Then there's other types of CTO roles which are more 
public facing, uh, the, the person who goes out and does the presentations, the person who also goes out and talks with the customers, right, and gathers their needs. Uh, we're, we're talking about quite complex technologies here, right? So therefore, typically on a customer engagement, you'll need to have somebody in the room who can see the whole picture. And that's, those are the two roles I play at SIGTECO as a CTO, which is understanding our technology down to the nuts and bolts, and then also being able to understand the business needs of the customer. And so that's, that's more or less the role that I play. Um, why is specification of IoT? In that title? Uh, that's, you know, if, if there are two CTOs in our company, uh, one is the CTO for public trust, right? So that's Nick France, and I am the CTO essentially for private trust. Okay. So uh, you gave a talk at Gardner called The Future of PKI in the Modern Enterprise. So <laughs> I'll lob that up to you. What is the future of PKI in the Modern Enterprise? I've been in PKI for, this is now my 20th year in that in and around companies around that technology and PKI of course I mean if you take a look at the opening keynote with Dave Motti and, and some of the other Gartner reps um, identity is the new perimeter and PKI for 20-30 years has been the way to protect identity it's a reliable a reliable technology has been around an awfully long time it's been proven over and over again in fact as I say most people don't even think about HTTPS most people don't even think about mm -hmm. the fact that whenever they use their banking card there's PKI behind it when you use your passport there's a PKI behind that okay so it's it's a very very reliable technology it's been around an awfully long time there are a lot of transformational use cases we're now seeing DevOps IOT uh, and others that are emerging where PKI certificates are the way to, to essentially protect um, those devices, those uh, processes. So we're talking about TLS mutual authentication. Okay. We're talking about TLS encrypted data in transit, right? All those things that we take for granted just because they, they work in our normal PC environments, we need to make those things work in new transformational use cases. How do you do PKI in small constrained devices? How do you do those things in ephemeral DevOps containers? Um, that's the, those are the things that I'm involved with right now. And that presentation was more or less trying to show the audience, here is how PKI is standing up and rising to the challenge of these new transformational use cases. Do you have any examples? What were some of the examples that you talked about in, in your talk from a, a company or a technology perspective? Sure. Uh, we talked about uh, an IoT specifically, which was the uh, how we kind of that that was my 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 ender. There you go. Uh, we talked about how purpose-built PKI. In other words, there's a lot of PKI companies out there. They might transform an old PKI system, uh, certificate authority system that they might have had, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, meant for other older human authentication use cases. They're complex. They're difficult to scale and not really meant for these new transformational use cases. What I showed was an architecture that was a purpose-built IoT PKI. And so therefore those technologies, are, that's what's gonna allow device vendors to start putting in security into their devices much, at a, much more economically, bring the product to, to market more quickly. Um, there's other examples as well, but that, that was a good one, I think. So you hit on something that I want to talk about. IoT devices present a number of security issues from leaking PII to 
hard-coded credentials that can be easily exploited. Plenty of other flaws allow hackers to get into these systems. Who should be responsible for the security of these devices? Do manufacturers need to be held more accountable, or is this something consumers need to be educated on as we see more of these devices proliferate? I think it's a bit of both, but if you take a look at um, legislation, this was also part of the presentation, uh, legislation is going to be forcing the OEMs to actually put in security like this. The thing is, as you know, a, a car, a medical device, uh, pretty much any IoT device um, is probably made up of all kinds of uh, pieces from a supply chain. And the lower, therefore, there are chipset vendors, all kinds of players within that supply chain. Those players, I know for a fact, are also stepping up their game in order to, so that the OEM can, at the end of the day, sell a secure product. But it's the OEMs, ultimately. It's, it's whoever is branded the, the thing uh, on the side of the box, right? So it's Ford, it's, you know, it's Omron, it's those guys. It's the OEMs who are ultimately responsible at the end of the day. And they will be, you know, it, it, those devices, if they still have the kinds of vulnerabilities that led to the Mirai botnet, um, you no longer have just the risk of being, you know, being called out by the security community, you're not going to be called out by legislation. And therefore, you now have legal risk. So right. it's, it, this is an interesting point in time where legislation is ahead of technology, which is kind of sad. <laughs> you wouldn't be sad. Yeah. Uh, but, but thankfully, that, that's, why we gave the, that's why we gave the presentation that we did, which is, look, there is, a, there is a correct way of doing this. There is a correct and economical way of doing this security now. There's no more excuse to, to just use static credentials the way you have been. How does that advent of 5G complicate improving security of IoT? You know what? It's, it's a variation on a theme. Uh, 5G, you would think uh, uh, the underlying standards were set completely, especially with regards to security, when in reality, um, organizations, consortiums such as GSMA, okay. they're fully aware of the fact that authenticating the device to a network and then communicating data across multiple network boundaries, right? Those are problems that you see in normal IoT every day. In fact, you, you see it in normal, uh, in normal IT processes. Those are difficult challenges to solve, but they're the same problems. 5G has the same problem, which is how do you securely authenticate to a network? In other words, the identity of the device needs to be rock solid. It, the ability to attest itself to a network and the ability to then securely um, send that data across multiple network boundaries, right? So it's, it, these are the same similar problems over and over again. 5G is absolutely no different. And uh, we're talking about consortiums for a moment. In terms of a bright light uh, with regards to security, the consortiums themselves have realized the same thing that was said here at the Gartner conference. Identity is the new perimeter. Protecting the identity of a device is the way to protect the device, whether it's 5G or not. And if you take a look at uh, standards coming out of the Open Connectivity Foundation, OCF, uh, Aeromax, which is part of the WiMAX Forum, uh, or GSMA, they realize PKI is the center of how you protect that identity. So thankfully, uh, the sec PKI security vendors are stepping up to the new needs that those consortiums are asking for. So it's, it's not all doom and gloom with, with you know, it, not everybody's going to be on, a, on the Mirai botnet in the future. Uh, thankfully, there will be devices that will be protected. 
So what else from an enterprise standpoint do you see companies sort of evolving towards? Like you were talking about supply chain a little bit. Is that where their worries lie or do they think of it as like the IoT devices that they're using as part of their business now that they need to be protected and they might have to put in their own security on top of that? Or, is, or are they worried about both of that? All of it. Absolutely all of it. Um, if you think about one of the most complicated versions of this story is at the manufacturing level itself. Okay. Which is, I'm worried about the fact that some of my manufacturing is offshore. I don't even completely trust, you know, the staff who is manufacturing because they, they might, you know, at the end of the shift start creating knockoffs. Um, I'm worried about chipsets that are coming in from other people's supply chain into my chipset. Therefore, you know, the, these assembly processes, who knows the, the, the genuineness of the parts that are going in. Um, people who are either security minded, uh, you know, if they have a central security role within a company, or whether they are just product managers of a product that claims to be secure. Um, all these people are worried about all of these things right now. So it's, it's as complicated of a problem as you can imagine. So we'd like to end the podcast on a random question. What's your favorite non-tech podcast? Oh, that's a great question. Because we know you host one, so you're definitely uh, familiar with it. Yeah, so yeah. I'm wondering what else did you listen to outside of all the tech stuff? I'm guilty. Uh, like everybody else, I probably listen to Joe Rogan every once in a while. Uh, he's fun. But also, uh, you, know, you know who's got a great non-tech podcast these days is uh, Conan O'Brien. Really? Yeah, Conan O'Brien. I, uh, I think it's titled Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I think you get to see a different side of Conan O'Brien other than being the, the comedian. He gets to play the, uh, you know, himself, which is really intelligent, very erudite uh, speaker. And uh, he does great, great, great interviews. Great. Jason, thanks for coming by for our interview and our podcast. Really appreciate you it was, hopping aboard. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thanks again to Jason for joining us. We'll be back next week. As always, stay curious.